0: All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. Acts, Acts chapter 15. And as you're turning there, it's a joy to be back with you after a little bit of time away. Good to see you all, especially if you're newer. Thank you for gathering with us. It's our privilege to have you as we continue and ascend in our time of worship through the studying in the Word of God. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to have a little bit of a longer introduction this morning. It'll become clear why in a moment. If it's not already, Acts 15, look down at verse 35. Uh, we've been in a verse by verse study through Romans, been out of it for a bit. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for preaching a couple times in my stead. We'll be back in it soonish, but in the meantime, Acts 15 35. Paul and Barnabas. Some leaders in the early church, this is a couple handful of years after Christ was crucified for our sins, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven. Paul and Barnabas spent a long time in Antioch, it's a couple hundred miles north of modern day Jerusalem, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Verse 36, Acts 15, 36, Now, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So, as they went throughout the Roman Empire, some gave their lives to Christ, they were saved, they were doing missions. And you'll notice in verse 36 that Antioch was the base church and there was a concern to go and visit other churches, probably younger, new church plants being hassled in the Roman Empire, church plants out on the mission field to see how they were doing. And so a few weeks ago, uh, Richard and I, Richard Jolly, our newest elder, uh, we did something like this and spent about a week um, in Italy coming alongside one of our missionaries for whom Matt prayed a little bit ago, Jordan Stanridge, Jordan and his wife, Jenny. And uh, yeah, thank you. We'll put that up there Um, through your prayers. Many of you have been asking how was the trip. Um, I wanted to give an unrushed debrief as a segue into this morning's study in the book of Acts. Um, through your generous prayers, your giving, your encouragement, um, though you may not, have, may not have gone with us, you participated indirectly and sacrificially in this essential work of Italy um, as, as Richard and I went to see how they are, CF Acts 15, 36. So as an introduction to our study this morning, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the trip um, just to give us a, a heart. And eyes for beyond the Tetons, eyes to look over the Tetons, as it were, and to, and to pray and to be encouraged what the Lord is doing uh, around the world, specifically through one of our missionaries. Now, if you don't know, this is Jordan and Jenny Standridge. Um, there are kids there Gabriella, Matteo, Davide, and Nico. Um, Jordan was born in Italy, moved here when he was in his teens. Went to the Master's University, eventually the Master's Seminary. Um, I had the privilege of discipling Jordan during that time. That was about 15, 20 years ago. Um, Leslie, my wife, discipled Jenny, his wife. Um, And they always talked about wanting to go to Italy to plant churches. And you might be thinking, why Italy? That'll become clear in a minute if it's not to you already. And what a great joy it is to see this coming about. As we heard them talking about this, just it was an idea And now it's happening. Um, Why plant a church in Rome? Um, We'll put a a map of Italy up there. I mean, Italy, architecturally, you know, art, stuff like that. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, If you've been there. Who's been to Italy and spent any amount of time, like, beside, just more than flying through? Let me see. Okay, a few. Cool. So, I mean, it's, Italy is, in, in some sense, it's the zenith of civilization. Really good coffee, really good food, amazing architecture, art, etc. cetera. Um, but spiritually, Italy is a wasteland. It is, I mean, scorched over. Um, in the United States, about 26% of the population professes to be Protestant, like not Catholic, how many of those actually are, are regenerate? We don't know. Probably not 26%. It's doubtful that a fourth of the country is regenerate, followers of Christ. In Italy, 0.6% of the population professes to be Protestant. And the, the Italian pastors there would say that there are, you could measure the amount of believers probably in the thousands, um, like Like a couple thousand, maybe a little bit more than that, and this is a country of 61 million people. Pretty sizable country. Um, So uh, I'll I'll, kind of mix in here just some stuff we did, ministry stuff. Um, When we got so, so you guys know uh, what's going on here. There we go. There's Rome. We were in Rome, the outskirts of Rome. We were up in Florence. it's just a wasteland. So we got off the plane, Richard and I, and um, put the next slide up. Um, and this is Jordan's house um, in an area of Rome called Borghesiana. And uh, Borghesiana is considered like somewhat of a, a, a bad place in Rome. I was at the airport and they're asking, where did you visit? When we were leaving, I said, Borgesana And they said, they just, they just cringed just like, oh, why, why would you go there? There's no beautiful sights there um jordan through some of your and others faithful support was able to uh, get a nice home there um go, you can keep going there travis this is his yard looking over the outskirts of italy that's his uh jordan's living a normal life he has a dog there sonia who's actually a refugee from ukraine <laughs> uh they have some friends who came from ukraine brought a dog that when they were running they got a dog uh to digress there but keep going if you would um, so we got off the plane and we're reminded, we're in Gentile land here, um, if you know what I mean. This is, this is pork. That's Gentile land. And it was a reminder that just as Paul went, and others went there a long time ago, it was Gentile land um, that's uh, your local 7 11 as it were. And uh, I like the smile on Richard's face there. We enjoyed ourselves, um, went in Rome due as the Romans, and uh, we enjoyed some of the, uh, the uh, local attractions. Uh, next slide, there. So this is um, every great work begins small. Um, this is the storefront of uh, Jordan's Church there, uh, Chiesa Evangelica Emmanuel, Emmanuel Bible Church, Emmanuel Evangelical Church, and uh, Satan does not want God glorifying Christ-centered Bible churches in Italy. These, these guys, uh, you can talk to me afterwards. I don't have time to get into it, but just have been opposed up and down. He'll ask, you know, to, as he was asking to rent different spaces for the church, they would, people would say, sure. And then when they find, found out why, oh, actually, um, something happened. You can't rent it now. And this has just been happening over and over. And so this is a, just a storefront. Um, here you got the next to them over the right. You can't see it. I um, mean, go back actually. Um, is a, uh, there's a little like a car mechanic place. Jordan has here and here. People live above him, so they get to hear the singing. Um, other shops, an old, old, old sort of storefront. And this is what God has provided. So, very exciting. Um, there's no church in this area of Rome, Borgheseana. In Rome, you can count on one hand, a city of five million plus, the outskirts, you can count on one hand the amount of churches where the Bible is preached, um, where there's sound doctrine where the gospel of justification by faith alone and Christ alone is upheld, expository preaching, um, discipleship is happening, you can count on one hand uh, in a city of five million. Um, and there, and there, are not five, there are not one million people at each of those churches. Um, there, there needs to be, but anyhow. Um, so this is why Jordan went there, beloved. Because uh, it's a wasteland. And because you're going to need God in a place like this. And you're going to have to depend on God for anything to happen. And so what better place to go than where you need God? And if anything positive is going to happen, it's not going to be explainable by the ingenuity and the machinations of man. And so they're there slugging it out. Um, people come by and, and scorn at him. Uh, the other day, a lady said, well, what are you doing here? He said, I'm planting an evangelical church. And the word evangelical in Italian, is, it's like a swear word. It's like people run. And she said, well, that, that's never going to that's never going to work here. And besides this, this used to be a beauty salon and on and on it went. And Jordan told her, well, you you can't take your hair with you to heaven, um, but believe in Christ. And um, so anyhow, next slide. So this this is the downstairs. This is Jordan's office. It's a wonderful little facility. Um, As a former hair salon, there's lots of outlets and funny things in there. Um, You can keep going there. And Jordan is, uh, so while we were standing there, some folks came by and you know, said, well, what, what's that? What's an evangelical church? And you got in a good discussion with them. And this is the life of a church planter. Next slide. Um, soccer is a big deal in Italy. And uh, Jordan has his kids in soccer. And we got to go with him to soccer practice. This, by the way, his, uh, one of his son's team is one of the farm teams for Team Roma, like the professional team. And they start them very early. And these kids were exceptional at soccer. And so Jordan's here sharing the gospel with other dads, talking to people on the sidelines, doing the normal stuff that we would do here as people who are on mission, just locally, not globally. And I want you to be encouraged by that because we don't need to kind of, we don't need to over-glamorize missions. If you're a Christian, you're just, we're just to live like a missionary in the normal rhythms of life. And what they're doing was surprisingly mundane, but also surprisingly encouraging because of that, if that makes sense. Um, next slide. And uh, so, to give a little context of uh, what, what they're up against and why Rome and, and Italy is so scorched over, I want to kind of explain the spiritual landscape for those of you who, who might not um, be familiar. So, this is, this is Rome in a particular place here called the Scala Sancta. And these are stairs, Scala, Santa, and... Um, they are thought, they're not, but they're thought to be the stairs that Jesus ascended when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate and that Constantine brought them back from Jerusalem. Constantine, who was emperor in the 300s, brought them back as a gift to his mother. Um, and uh, supposedly a priest had a revelation about that and preached that. Um, the thing that's peculiar about these and uh, abominable is uh, there's a sign here, you can't see it, but it says, ascend on your knees only. And then there's an offering thing right here, and you see some people going up. This is actually a light day where we were there. Um, And it is said in uh, Roman Catholic doctrine that if if you go up the stairs on your knees, with each stair, you get a certain amount of time taken off purgatory. Purgatory being like a holding tank in between heaven and hell. So in other words, as you go up these stairs on your knees, you're hopefully earning your way into heaven. And of course, that is an abomination because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. So these, these are some of the things that Jordan is up against. Uh, next, next slide here. Um, we were, so we were in the, uh, the Cathedral of St. John there. This is a Catholic gentleman and Jordan was doing what a church planter should do preaching the gospel and in a wonderful discussion about can you earn your way to heaven by works or is it a free gift through faith alone and Christ alone? Um, Richard and I don't know Italian, but uh, we were able to pick up that it was a lively conversation. Next slide. Um, This door here uh, is called the Door of Jubilee. This is downtown Rome um, at the uh, the, uh, church of San Giovanni or St. John. And anybody familiar with what what the door, the door of Jubilee is in Catholicism? Good. I'm glad you're not familiar with it. So about every 25 years, on the left here, it says in Latin, Jubilee, and on the right, the year 2000. Every 25 years, plus or minus, the Pope, whoever he is at the time, decides that this is a year of Jubilee. And so what happens is these doors that have a, like a marble wall behind them, you can't open it, they'll break the marble, they'll open the door for a short amount of time, and it's considered uh, to be a Roman Catholic pilgrimage where you come and you walk through the door. And when you walk through the door, again, that is supposed to take a certain amount of years off of purgatory. Purgatory, by the way, doesn't exist. It's, a, it's not in the Bible. Um, and it's a very big deal. I talked to a, a Roman Catholic, a French priest who was there. Um, and he said, it's like, a, it's really a turning point in your life when you walk through the door. And um, I asked him, Um, as I was speaking to him, I said, well, if the Pope can open this door and people can get, you know, sort of inch their way to heaven, why does he do it every 25 years? Why doesn't he just have it open all the time in his system so that you can get there quicker? And he wasn't really able to explain to me any particular cohesive answer why um, in that system. You understand why, though. Um, So this is what Jordan's up against. Um, Next slide. Uh, this is just a, a cathedral, one of the many in Rome. And you'll notice who, who is there. Um, that's a woman with a crown. That's, of course, Mary. And if, if you were to, say if you came from like a desert island, you were an indigenous person and you had never heard anything about any faith, and you came to Rome or Italy, you would think that the, the religion there was about some woman who's a, a, like a queen in heaven or something. Um, this is all over in the art. Mary is exalted, um, she functionally is higher than Jesus. She's considered co-mediator with Jesus. Um, uh, some Catholic, one of the greatest, the, the greatest, most prominent uh, Mariolatry document written in the 1800s by a Roman Catholic scholar says that all obey Mary, even God, end quote. Um, and so there are things like that. Um, and so you can understand that this is, this is gonna be a formidable task for any Bible preaching a gospel-believing church planter. Next slide. Um, this was the, uh, supposedly the, the chains of, of Peter. He's, his ashes are supposedly uh, underneath there. People are praying to this on their knees, weeping. Um, it's considered a relic, uh, Peter's remains. In other words, that if you see it, you pray it, you pray to it, you touch it. Again, you get a certain amount of time taken off purgatory. You inch closer to heaven. And so this is, this is, this is what Rome teaches. This isn't what people say about Rome. This is what Rome teaches. Next slide. Um, so we, of course, are in Rome. So we saw some of that. These are the ancient ruins, like what uh, Paul and uh, your older brothers and sisters in the faith in the first century would have saw. This is the forum. And Paul, when he was on trial in Rome, would have stood somewhere in here around these steps in the forum downtown as he was on trial and the, the, the courthouse and whatnot was there. Next slide. Um, there we are, of course, the Coliseum, Coliseum. Jordan on the left there, Richard and I, Uh, The Colosseum, which in the first century was opened late in the first century by Nero, um, who was an interesting fellow, if you're not familiar. And your older brothers and sisters in the faith, if you know Christ, they would be thrown to starved and beaten and whipped and abused wild animals for entertainment before crowds of 60,000, 70,000 people in the Colosseum there, the Christians being considered criminals for not worshiping Caesar as Lord, but worshiping Christ as Lord. And so those are the ruins there. Uh, next slide, the Fountain di Trevi here, just pretty close to the uh, the Colosseum. Beautiful 18th century work of art, amazing, but also mischievous. Uh, there was a, a policeman who is the fountain security guard there, and we were talking to him, and you know people were throwing money in, and there's tons of money um, down there in the water, and um, supposedly if you throw your money in there, it's you get good luck and other different things. So we asked the security guard, we said, how much money do you guys collect out of there? Do you rake out of there? And he said about 40,000 euro a week. And the euro is a little bit stronger than the dollar right now, so it's, it's not quite one-to-one. And so that, that, that equals about two million bucks a year that they're shoveling out of the Fountain de Trevi. And guess who gets that money? The Vatican. The Vatican gets that. Um, and so it's uh, an, a lucrative, lucrative business um, that's happening there. Um, so anyhow, all that to say, this is somewhat of the context of what missionaries and God's people are up against in Rome. Next slide. Um, Richard and I had to contextualize and be, you know, getting, getting involved in the, the local ministry. So we ate at the local, uh, had an ice cream at Venki, and behind us is a, a, a chocolate fountain. Is that what it was, Richard? A chocolate coming down the wall over there, We're enjoying our ice cream and a nice warm spring day in Rome. Next slide. Um, so this, here's the church plant team. All great works start small. Um, Paul, when he would go into a city, it was him and his team of a couple guys, as we'll see in the text this morning. So this is the church plant team of Chiesa Evangelica Emanuela. And so you have uh, Pastor Jordan there, And there are, including Jordan and his wife, there is an elder from their mother church, which I'll talk about in Rome, um, his wife, and then another couple. So you have six adults and nine kids. Um, That's about what we were, uh, some of you who were around when we started about 14 years ago as a church. And um, so they had us do a little bit of training, discussion on a core group dynamics as a church plant team and being these early fragile days as a sapling and as a seedling church. It's very difficult, very easy to get blown over. The work is not stable from a human standpoint. So a great time with these dear, dear saints. Next slide. Uh, this is our morning routine, uh, taking Jordan's kids to school. Um, and it, it's funny, there's a, there's a bar next to the school, but a, a, don't think like a bar here. That means a cappuccino place. So Jordan said, we're going to the bar at 8 a.m. I was like, huh? <laughs> uh, we, that, that meant we're going to go, you know, uh, hang out, rub shoulders with the locals. He's talking to parents, dropping his kids off at school, becoming a regular at the cappuccino shop, and just trying to get to know people and talk about the Lord and build relationships for Christ, just like you do in, in your life. Missions isn't a whole lot different wherever you go. Next slide. Um we stopped just to get a feel for what our brothers and sisters endured in earlier days at the Castillo Catacombs. Anybody been to the catacombs in Rome? Uh, a sobering sight. This is a whole, another topic itself, but this is, um, this is a statue after some of the paintings they found in the first, second, third century catacombs um, with uh, the shepherd, with uh, the, the lamb on his back symbolizing Christ. And in the catacombs, you can go to the next slide, um, so this is old, 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 old stuff here. We're talking 100s, 200s, 300s. And these are located outside of the main city of Rome. And the Christians, Christians use them for two reasons, for worship and for burial. Because they were considered vile scum of the earth people in society among the polytheistic Romans, they weren't allowed to, to, to use the, the burial places Um, in Rome. Furthermore, Rome typically did cremations. A lot of the early Christians didn't prefer that. So they said, get out of here. So they dug 30 foot plus, just an an incredible network. There are 60 of these catacombs. We only visited one. It took us about an hour to get through them, uh, of these catacombs throughout, where it's just shelves of, the bodies aren't there anymore where people were buried. And there's a lot of them that are this this long. that shows who they were burying. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, everywhere. I mean, floor to ceiling. And they also had to worship uh, in some of these. So you can see some of the artwork because they were just chucked out and being chased and killed and tortured. And so they had to go underground. And um, sometimes when, you know, as a church plant, we've wondered, Lord, you know, would you give us a building and this and that? We have it really good. Uh, If we're not in some underground stinking catacomb, you know that's better than a lot of our brothers and sisters had it in years gone by. So just a sobering, uh, heart-wrenching situation there. Next slide. And so um, again, more of when in Rome, Uh, we were forced to sample some of the uh, local kind of back alley places where tourists don't go. This is Jordan's father's favorite, who's a missionary in Rome, his favorite place to eat. Pizza, pasta, all that good stuff. Next slide. Jordan is talking to people there. We took the train then up to Florence, about 200 miles north of Rome. And that's a, that's a fast train, by the way. That's kind of fun. Those trains go about 150 miles an hour. Um, but right away, I, there's the three of us and a guy. This guy was uh, privileged enough to sit next to us, not a believer. And so Jordan just got right into it, sharing the gospel, talking about eternal life, the joy of Jesus, doing fun church planter stuff. Next slide. So in Rome, we were there for, uh, there's a, there a pastor's conference. We'll talk more about that. Uh, excuse me, in Florence. Um, And this is an incredible city. Among other places, we stumbled across um, this martyr spot of a gentleman in the Italian Reformation, and there were very few, very, very, very few. Um, Because during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, people were coming like down from Switzerland and France and England over the Alps, but the saying was the, the Christians would get killed in the Alps. They'd get murdered and martyred, before they were able to make it into Italy. So there was really never much of a reformation in Italy, uh, unlike other countries. So this was the martyr spot. Um, an Italian reformer named Savonarola. he was martyred there May 23rd, I believe it was 1493, 1497. And we just kind of stumbled across it in one of the main squares there. Um, so just a, a sobering deal. It's a plaque about that big. He and two other guys were burned, uh, burned on fire at that exact spot there as they stood for the faith. Next slide there. Unspeakable cathedrals everywhere, but the abomination of these cathedrals as glorious as they are from an art perspective, not a single one of these cathedrals. And uh, the same as in France, I lived in France for a while not in a, and not a single one. Do you walk in there and is the Bible opened and an expository sermon given and preaching happening? And the good news of the gospel being shared, it's just incense bowing down to relics, weeping over some artifact. It is utterly tragic. And there are these buildings everywhere. I mean, they could be used for the gospel, and they're being used for heresy. Next slide. Um, It's funny, we came across, and we're in Florence, we stumbled across a, a church, and this is a painting of Augustine, 4th century uh, believer. You see this painting everywhere, like in books. I've never, I never knew the original. We just stumbled across a church and it was the, the original. It was right there, so that was kind of cool. Next slide. Uh, this is the Domo. Um, it's, uh, it's it, I mean, an incredible building. It's still the largest brick dome in the world. Uh, they began construction on in the in the late, I think it was the 1200s. And again, no preaching. No gospel being preached in these cathedrals, notwithstanding the excellence. Next slide. And so here's the pastor's conference. This is like the Shepherd's Conference of Italy, if you're familiar with the Shepherd's Conference in L.A. that many of uh, the guys here go to. Um, There are 25 guys, including Richard and I. This is Jordan's father, um, David Standridge. 23 pastors there. These are like all of the solid Bible preaching, gospel preaching, biblically sound pastors in a country of 61 million. So this is why Jordan's planting a church there and why we're supporting him. And this is why we went to see how he's doing and help do some training and preaching and encouragement. This is it. When you go to the Shepherds Conference, there's like 5,000 guys. The Shepherds Conference in Italy is 23. Uh as I interacted with some of these just precious men, these Italian pastors, they say a church in Italy, uh, a church of 60 to 70 people is considered a big, a huge church, an evangelical, like Bible preaching. Um, even in a, a big city like this, Florence, 500, 600,000 people. If you have a church where there's 60 people, that's, that's a massive church. Um, a little more context of people in evangelical churches are women, and praise God for that. But that also means that there's not a lot of leadership happening, right? Not much to choose from for elders and raising men up. Um, Most of the, a lot of the people who come to church are functional widows, spiritual widows. Um, There was also a publisher there, 75, he said 75% of his books he publishes are for pastoral training. Why would he do that? You need to train up leadership so you can have sound teaching. But he also said 75% of his buyers of his pastoral stuff are women because it's all there is to read in Italian for sound evangelical stuff. Next slide. So here's their book table. That's it. That's, that's about what they have going on there uh, in Italian for robust, you know, Bible-centered, sound, resources, stuff, books to read. So it's a wasteland, beloved. It's a wasteland. Um, when, someone, when someone's converted to Christ, um, one of the brothers said that it's basically a call to celibacy because most churches are about 20, 25 people, and it's like a few couples Maybe a couple dear ladies who are married, who are older, and then, you know, like a young single guy gets saved in his 30s or 20s. And there's no one to marry within the faith. So it's really, you're counting the cost when you give your life to Christ in Italy. Um, One pastor said nine out of ten people who visit his church, they leave. And that's very common in Italy because it's such a cultural scourge. There's such a satanic hold on the country as there has been for centuries. Next slide. So this is, uh, this is Chiesa Berea, Berean Bible Church. In downtown Rome, this is thought to be the first Christ-centered, Bible-believing, sound doctrine, evangelical church in modern times in Italy. And this is the church that Jordan's grandfather planted. As he went to Wheaton, like Wheaton College in Illinois, and then went here after World War II as a 21-year-old guy, unmarried, and the Lord really used him. Um, and really, we'll put that in quotes for, you know, Italian context. And so this church is about 60 people. So it's considered like the church in Italy, um, the, the, the standard, you know, the, one of the churches that all the other churches look to. Um, Jordan is planting his church out of that church, which is, to Jordan's knowledge, he said that's, that's not been done planting a church from another church. Um, so I had the privilege of preaching here um, a few weeks ago. Um, that's uh, my translator, a dear brother from New Orleans. Um, is it Was it Damien? Was that his name? Yeah, Damien, who moved there from New Orleans 25 years ago and stayed there. And uh, married an Argentinian woman, and they have kids. And um, a little bit more on the Italian context. So as we were talking at the pastor's conference, Uh, We were talking about shepherding and coming alongside people who are believers but are struggling with sin in their life. And the pastors, uh, Jordan's father, David, told me, he said, you have to understand something about Italian culture. When there are like intermarital problems or when someone's struggling with personal sin, in Italian culture, you never say anything about that. You ignore it. That's what Italians do. Radio silence. You don't talk about it. And they don't, it's so much so that in Italian, they don't even have a, a word for accountability. They don't have a word in Italian for like, coming alongside to confront somebody in love and, and obedience to Scripture for their sin. And so uh, the idea was presented for me to, ple- to preach Galatians 6, 1 to 3. Brothers, if anyone is trapped in any trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one. And so I preached that passage that, that morning, and afterwards they have a, a, a prayer meeting um, and one of the elders prayed and asked God's forgiveness in front of the church for not doing this, for not coming alongside other believers when they're struggling with sin. The, the Italian church has not practiced that. It has not been done. The pastor said, we, have no, we do not do this. We have not matured as, as churches as a, to a place in our walks with Christ and in shepherding churches where we would actually do that, where we would come alongside and speak to someone to help them in love if they were struggling with sin. So a, a moving, moving time. Next slide. I got to speed it up here a little bit. Um, they also have a sign ministry there, sign language. It was very interesting. A sister was asking questions through the, the sign, the person doing sign. And Damien, that's actually his wife, was translating to me. So we had like a three-way translation going. It was, it was very complicated, but it was wonderful. Next slide. Um, and then that night, I preach. You can't see. There's, there's about, there, Jordan has, Jordan's church plant is doing well for Italy. It's like 15, 20 people. That's big. For a brand new church in Italy, so I'm preaching there. Jordan is translating. Dear, dear saints, next slide. And there we are as we close the trip. This is a surreal moment. We had lunch with them at Jordan's grandpa's favorite restaurant, and right, right behind us at the restaurant, that's the Appian Way, which is like right there. You know, this 2,000-year-old Roman road, um, is still standing. So, um, a sacred, sacred time, a, a wonderful time. Um, Jordan, his wife, his kids, there's Richard. And um, you know it was hard to leave. We left part of our heart there uh, in Italy, not because of the architecture, of the food, but because of the dear, dear saints who are slugging it out, and just a spiritual inferno, inferno. Um, so uh, afterwards, I'll take some questions, if you, and if y'all want to talk. Um, that was our time in Italy. Thank you very much for supporting us in prayer, encouragement, your financial support. It is not in vain. Thank you for, for, for participating indirectly. Um, and uh, Richard and I are convinced more than ever that we need to give our all to this work. Um, and God is moving in Italy. People are being saved. It's, it's slow. They say, if you talk to an Italian church planter, they say we're on the 25-year kind of timeline. What does that mean? They say after about 25 years, you start to see people coming to Christ. There's, there's some other friends of mine who are up in Genoa, a city of multiple hundreds of thousands near the French-Italian border. They've been there st- seven years, Two very faithful guy. They have not had a convert yet. Seven years and they have not had a convert yet. Some people would call them failures. Uh, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, ministered 50 years, had zero converts. Some people might call him a failure, but he's, he's got two books in the Bible. That's about faithfulness. God's, the results are up to God. So with that, by way of introduction, turn back a couple chapters actually to Acts 13. Um, for the next few minutes, Acts 13. This is sort of a, in some sense, this is kind of a mission Sunday. Um, I wanted to look at a passage that talks about some of the early missions work. Acts 13, look at verse one. I'm gonna read a couple verses. We're just gonna do a light survey flyby of the passage here. Acts 13, God's word says, now we were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas And Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had, excuse me, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus and they reached Salamis and began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also, excuse me, had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man, Barnabas and Paul, this man summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. We'll stop there. A little bit of context what's happening in Acts. Acts is all about Jesus keeping his promise in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build my church. Uh, If you were to maybe retitle Acts, it might be better, the Acts of Christ through the Spirit, through his people. It's about God's faithfulness to do what he said he was going to do through the disciple-making of obedient believers. The first 30 years of the church And if you're like a 37,000 foot viewpoint of Acts, you could divide it up this way. Acts 1 to 8 is the gospel spreads in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through Acts 12, the gospel spreads in Judea and Samaria. The gospel spreads in Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 to 12. And then Acts 13 through the rest of the book to 28 is the gospel spreads to the end of the earth. And I want you to see something cool. Look back at Acts chapter one. Keep your pencil there in Acts 13. Look at Acts chapter one really quick. Where do we get that outline for the book of Acts? Acts chapter one. Look at verse eight. Acts 1.8. So context here, Jesus is just risen from the dead. He's about to ascend back to heaven. And he foretells this. He says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So he's saying, you, first is talking to a small group of highly imperfect guys, you're going to go out and preach the gospel and the gospel will spread to those areas. Jerusalem, which Acts record in chapter one through eight, Judea and Samaria, the outskirts, the larger israel chapter 8 through 12 and then chapter 13 to 28 beginning with the rest of the earth back to chapter 13 turn back to acts 13 so this is what acts is doing and our section here in acts 13 we're going to look at just for a few minutes begins the great begins the record of the 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 very the the this the in seed version going out to share the gospel into the rest of the world in other words outside Israel. And this really hadn't been done much, if at all, in ancient times. So, now for our outline, we're just, again, just a quick fly-by survey. Um, we're gonna see observations on the anatomy of biblical missions. The anatomy of biblical missions. Some observations on the anatomy of biblical missions missions in Acts chapter 13. We're certainly not going to turn over every stone there is in this chapter, but just look at a few things for the next 20 minutes or so. The anatomy of biblical missions. Now, I want us to understand something about the context here. Rome, the Roman Empire, was a corrupt government. Very corrupt. Shady things happening across the Roman Empire. Shady people. Ruling in the Roman Empire, unjust things, not a lot of freedom for Christians, sketchy politicians. And yet, what's interesting is, as you see this explosion of the work of God, it is biblical missions and speaking the gospel of Christ that is the priority of Christians, And this sort of ragtag from a human standpoint, ragtag group of people, they start with 120. They see it as we're going to give our greatest effort and time and resources to missions. In other words, evangelism, all missions means is evangelism locally and evangelism globally. Evangelism in my neighborhood or evangelism across the street or evangelism across the Adriatic Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. We are going, our greatest focus as Christians is going to be on evangelism. Despite the corruption and the vileness of their politicians. That's insightful for us. And the reason they did that is because Jesus commanded it in Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So number one, Well, that is the context and the anatomy of missions very quickly here. Missions begins with God. Number one, missions begins with God. Look at verse 2 of Acts 13. Missions begins with God. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work which I have called to them. Verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, this is a day before the Bible was completed, so the Holy Spirit is still giving direct revelation. Now that the Bible is completed, we don't need that anymore. But the bigger point here that God wants us to see is that missions begins with God. God, as we studied in the evangelism class this morning, God has chosen a people for himself from the foundation of the earth, Ephesians 1. He, this is his plan for the earth in Genesis 3.15. God said to Adam and Eve after they had sinned, someone's going to come one day and crush crush Satan and fix this. And God's plan since the beginning has been missions. In other words, bringing in the Messiah, the Savior, in whom people would believe and they'd be saved. This begins with God. This isn't some plan a human came up with. This is God from the beginning, Christ coming down and injecting a little more fuel into it. Number two... Number two, and so God is a God of missions. We read that in Psalm 67. Number two, notice the sending church. There's a sending church in missions. Ascending sending church, verses one and two. These aren't, Paul and Barnabas aren't lone ranger Christians who say, well, I just do church with my friends in the mountains whenever I feel like it. I, I don't need to become a part of a church. Notice there's nothing like that. And if anyone could say that, it's Paul because he's an apostle. I mean, he writes 13 of the, new, of the 27 New Testament books. So you look at verse 1, there is at Antioch. Paul's among them. There's, there's, there's all, this is leadership. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, probably from like Ethiopia. Niger means black in, in Greek. Lucius of Cyrene, that's northern Africa. Uh, and Menean, who's brought up with Herod, one of the corrupt governors. Saul, who is Paul. And you have Barnabas there as well. So these guys are attached to a local church. There's accountability. There's testing of their character. There's training. And then there's sending out. The plurality of leadership. People want to go on missions. That's awesome. Let's talk about it. Let's do that. But let's do some training. There is a sending church. And that's what Antioch was. Number three, the humble dependence in missions. The humble dependence in missions. We need to have a humble dependence in missions. This is found in verse 2 to 4. So, in verse 2, notice they were ministering to the Lord. So, they're doing church life there. They're preaching and teaching. You saw there are prophets, there's teachers, they're fasting, they're praying. For clarity, Lord, we want this message to go out. What, what should we do? Where should we go? There is a humble dependence on the Lord. That's what fasting and praying are for. And that's essential for missions, beloved. The God, this is about you. This is about your name. We need your strength. You need to provide for this. You need to strengthen for this. So notice they're not starting out with, okay, what, what cool plan can we come up with? They're not beginning with human ingenuity, depending on themselves. It's like, God, this is about you, for you, and it's gonna be through you. And so they're praying, they're they're seeking God's will, the humble dependence of missions. Verse four, notice by the way, they sail down to Seleucia and Cyprus. And a quick map, we'll put a map up here of this first missionary journey. Do we have that? There it is. Um, So they start here in Antioch, and then they go out, and they do kind of a big circle through modern day Turkey. Here's Cyprus. Um, my wife and I, for uh, our 10th anniversary, went on a Bible tour and went to Cyprus, and it was sort of overwhelming to see just how many, how many miles they covered in a day before, you know, modern travel technology, any kind of technology, for that matter. So they're seeking the Lord. There needs to be a humble dependence, not if, but as we do emiss- missions, whether across the street or across the Atlantic. Number four, a team. A team needed in missions. A team is needed in missions. Look at verse five. They reach, so first of all, you saw the team of leaders there in verse one. In verse five, they reach Salamis. They begin to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had, so they, Barnabas and Paul, also had John. This is John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. They had him with them. And, and, And unless you're an apostle today and you're not, nobody is. The three qualifications to be an apostle, you have to see the risen Christ. You have to have the apostolic gift set. And Christ has to have personally commissioned you to be an apostle. This office ceased in the first century, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. Unless you're an apostle with a complete gift set, you're going to need a team. And even the apostles had a team to complement the work, for accountability, for strength. One guy's preaching, another's counseling, and other guys are doing, you know, some of the logistical work. Essential, holding each other accountable, encouragement the team needed. Number five, and looking at the anatomy of missions, the opposition to missions. The opposition to missions. If you're doing it right, so doing it biblically, there will always be opposition to missions as there is in Italy, as there is here in Jackson, in Wyoming, there is, as there is everywhere. Last week, I was in Florida with some guys, Brian Twombly and his wife and four kids who are moving to Papua New Guinea in about three weeks to begin church planting there in Medang, Papua New Guinea. And there's opposition that's happening already. Opposition, verse six to eight, verse 45. Look at verse six. When they went through the whole island, there's a magician. It's crazy how crazy people find church plants. Church plants, fragile works of God, are like a magnet, To just bizarre situations. You see this in Italy, you see this in Wyoming, you see this all over the place. A magician comes to them and starts opposing them. And he he was a false prophet. Look at verse 45 in chapter 13. Turn over to verse 45. So they're preaching, they're preaching on missions. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Verse forty-six: Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, said it was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first, but you reject it. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse fifty: Go down to verse fifty. The Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city, the popular people, the wealthy, the instigated a persecution and drove them out of the district. Look. If you're doing it right, whether you're doing missions to a family member, someone here in town, a coworker, or across the continent, you're going to be opposed because it's a Genesis 3 world. We have a real enemy who wants to take down any true work of God. And so far from a sign of that you're doing something wrong, it's actually usually a confirmation of the opposite. Number six, the difficulty in missions. The difficulty in missions, verse 13, among other places, all the other verses we cited, the difficulty in missions. Look at verse 13. After Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's in Cyprus, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, that's southern, uh, southern Turkey. Leslie and I have been in that region. Um, it was heavily Roman Empire-ish back in the day. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's a lot going on here. Later in Acts, we find out there was a huge disagreement on the church plant team. Where John Mark, there was a major disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so John Mark abandons them halfway into their their church planting endeavor. And Paul was... Not happy about that. You see this later in Acts. We don't know all the details. Some scholars and commentators think it could be because he was just scared. He was homesick. Others think because in that part of Southern Turkey there, there's the Taurus Mountains and they're, they're, they're huge. It was hard to cross in a day without technology. There was a lot of malaria there. Just the price to pay, John Mark tapped out for whatever reason. Point being, it's not gonna be rare. It's gonna be normal. That whether you're doing missions across the street or across the globe, There's going to be conflict. There's going to be problems. No church is perfect. No church plant team is perfect. But that is to give us an an encouragement, beloved. Because notice, the Bible doesn't end at Acts 13, 13, does it? In other words, there is this problem among their team, and it all failed, and nobody gets saved, and Christianity is over. This tells us that God is in control, and that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be among other perfect people who are believers for the mission to work, for people to come to faith in Christ. Don't overthink evangelism. Well, I'm, I don't know if I'll say it, or I don't know what to say, I get nervous. Just trust God, talk. Say, talk about Jesus, pray. God will do the saving as he ordains. Seven, the heart of missions. Number seven, the heart of missions. This is this is the bulk of the passage, verse sixteen to forty-one. Verse sixteen to forty-one. The heart of missions. And verse. You get to verse sixteen. They go into southern Turkey. Paul stood up. Now let me back up a little bit. They arrive in Pisidian Antioch, different from their sending city, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So they go to a place. I think some. Some Jews will be gathered here, and the rest, almost the whole rest of the chapter, is preaching. Over 50% of the chapter is preaching. About 20 to 25% of the book of Acts, our early church missions record, is sermons. This shows us something very important. The heart of missions is simply saved people who struggle, who are imperfect. Loving others enough to speak the gospel, to talk about Christ crucified and risen for our sins. That is the only message that can save a person. Paul began Romans 1 and 117, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. There's no power in you being like real personable, you being cool in your subculture, you being a a great skier or, or being so clever with words. There's no power in that. God might use those in avenues, but the power is in the gospel. Well, you say, I can't can't say that. Sure you can. You can say, I love you. There's a God in heaven. He created us. We all know that. We've all fallen short. No one's perfect. We've abandoned God's good plan for us. He sent his own son to come, who's God, eternal God, wrapped himself in humanity, lived the life we couldn't died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave to prove that he was who he said he was, that he's conquered death and sin. Repent, put your faith in him, and you can be saved. And there's a glorious heaven where death and sin and violence and injustice will be no more. You can say that. We can all say that. It's hard. I struggle with this. But this is the heart of missions, beloved. Notice as they're going to these places, many of which were destitute, The prime focus of their work is not building wells, uh, mosquito nets, um, other things like that, but speaking the gospel. That's kind of a scourge and offensive to many in culture because they don't see that as as humanitarian work, but speaking the gospel is the chief humanitarian work because it does the greatest good for a human if they embrace it eternal life. That's not in any way to demean some of these other more hands-on things. These are important. They matter. But the chief humanitarian work that's the heart of missions and the focus of the church and a very corrupt government is spreading the message of Christ crucified. I hope you see that. It's filled in the book of Acts. The mission we've been given by Christ in Matthew 28:18 to 20 is a mission of speaking and loving as we do. Other things, of course, but never not speaking the gospel. By the way, that sermon, it's a wonderful glimpse of first century preaching. It's expository. There's an outline. Paul talks about in verse 16 up to about verse 26. He's talking about the need for Jesus. Then he talks about Jesus came and died and rose And then he calls for a response. So that's the heart of missions. Number eight, the flexibility needed in missions. The the humble flexibility needed in missions. This is found in verse 46, 47, and 51. The humble flexibility needed in missions. Paul and Barnabas, look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And that was a great offense to someone with an Israelite passport in the first century. Verse 47, for the Lord has commanded us, I've placed you as a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So they go, they're, they're completely rejected, they They're persecuted, look at verse 51. As they're persecuted, verse 51, having shaken off the dust of their feet against them, they went to Iconium. That was a symbol that even the dust of our feet, we're out of here. As Jesus said earlier to them in Matthew 10 and other places. So there needs to be a flexibility. You're sharing with somebody, loving, praying. They're not feeling it, share with other people. Pray for them, still love them. Circle back around. There needs to be a humble flexibility whether you're doing missions across the street or the continent. Number nine, the joy and fruit in missions. The joy and fruit in missions. Verse 12, 43, 48, and 52. The joy and fruit in missions. Verse 12, 43, 48, and 52. Look at verse 12. So as they were, I mean, it got rowdy on Cyprus, but verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice his astonishment was the teaching of the Lord. Verse 43. When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace. Of God. So there's joy, there's fruit. Sometimes it's just very few. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, in other words, that God actually had a plan to reach those prosciutto eating Gentiles, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the joy of to see God, the power of God. In our evangelism class this morning, we put our job in one column and God's job in the other. In the other. God, our job, speak and pray and love. Speak the gospel, pray that people would believe, love them. God's job, save. God's the one who has to do it. And to see the fruit, it's a joy. And finally, number 10 in the anatomy of missions, the hope for missions, the hope. The hope for missions found in verse 48. I'm sure you noticed it. There is great hope. Not in ourselves, not in our plan, not in how clever we are, but look at verse 48. The hope in missions, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And notice this catchy phrase here. As many as had been appointed to eternal life. Please look at that phrase. As many as had been appointed. Do you see the phrase? To eternal life believed. The Greek word appointed has the idea of to cause something or someone to be placed in a particular position. It was an ancient term used in military context to to assign to arrange somebody. This soldier is appointed to go here and fight here. So it speaks of God appointing, arranging, deciding ahead of time that people will be saved and who they will be. CF Ephesians one three to six, Romans eight, twenty nine to thirty, John six, forty four, six thirty seven, six thirty eight, six thirty nine. One commentator says Luke used it here to show that God's elective decree included Gentiles. Turn back to John six really quick. John 6. Two more minutes here. John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6:37. We were looking at this in the evangelism class. John 6:37. Jesus says, notice his words. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. So there are some whom God has given to Christ beforehand. They're appointed to eternal life. And it says that those who were appointed, at least at that time and in that city, back to Acts 13, they believed. This is the hope in missions. The hope isn't, well, hopefully we have some clever enough techniques. You know, we have a cool enough fog machine in our church, neat enough lights and a hip enough band, a trendy enough band to get people to come to Christ and believe. No, people are dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The only hope is that God has said, I'm gonna save people and I've appointed them. That's the hope. We go with the hope of not man's cleverness, but God's sovereignty, without which there is zero hope for missions. Because if people are dead in sin, You and I aren't powerful enough to wake them up. So, beloved, this is the anatomy of missions. A quick so-what. Let me give three quick so-whats. Three quick so-whats. Love missions, support missions, do missions. Love missions, support missions, do missions. Love it. Number one, love missions, have God's heart. What's the hope for the human race? Is it that we get better politicians? That's nice and we need to pray for that. But the greatest hope is Christ, is the gospel, is regenerate hearts that one day someone comes along, works with them, maybe for years is loving them, shares the gospel, they get saved. Love missions, have a heart of Psalm 67. God's heart for the lost. Look over the Tetons, beloved, or look over whatever city you believe in. Let's try not to be so consumed with ourselves at times and think globally, think locally, think neighborhoodly, think about the lost. I know it's hard as you're trying to duke life out, but may God give us grace to do one of the chief things we're here to do. Part of the reason you're not dead if you're a Christian is to do missions, whether local or global. Number two, support missions. Support it. Support it with prayer. Support it by going on one of these trips. Support it by becoming a missionary. I'll talk more about that in a minute, like to other places besides here. Pray, give to it, support it. In Acts, the church prayed, they fasted, they gave. God decides, God has decided that evangelism, whether locally or globally, is the means by which he's going to bring people in and transform lives and rescue people from hell. So be about it. And start, number three, third so what? Do missions. Let us do missions, the third so what. Do missions. It's a command for all of us. What happened in Acts 13 is commanded categorically for every believer. Matthew Matthew 28, 18 to 20, You may be thinking, I mean, I'm like a mom with young kids. I can barely get through the day. I I can't do missions. I can't go to Papua New Guinea or do what they did in Acts 13. It's okay. It's going to look different for everyone. It's going to look like something for everyone. You be faithful in your home if you're a young mom. You pray. Evangelize your kids as you're out and about in the normal rhythms of life, wherever you are, share the gospel with other moms for others of us in different demographics. The way to have a heart for missions is to start doing it here locally. Are we doing missions? No one is not a missionary. It's just a matter of we're being faithful. We're all called to be disciple-making disciples, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You might say, I don't even know where to start. Ask somebody in the church. Come to the evangelism class. Talk to your GC leader. Or maybe you will. Maybe God will raise up someone in this church to go do what Jordan and Jenny are doing. Or what Brian and Kara Twombly with their three little kids who are like all four kids who are under eight going to Papua New Guinea. They're moving there. The hope isn't our strength, how we could figure it out, but in God. Our hope is in God. So I know this is a quick flyby. But whatever it is, wherever we are, we get to and are commanded to love missions, to support missions, to do missions. How might God want you to grow in loving, supporting, and doing missions? How how might God want you to make some adjustments in your life so that you would be more faithful? Maybe there's somebody you could share with, somebody you could pray for. Somebody you could say, God, would you open doors? Or maybe, Lord, I I think I want to go overseas one day and talk to the elders. I don't know where to start. This is God's plan for a sinful world. Whether you're in a corrupt government like the Roman Empire or a corrupt government like the United States of America or somewhere else, everywhere else. This is the heart of God. And may we have the same heart. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have worked throughout the centuries. Any one of us who is saved this morning, Father, we are because someone was faithful to speak to us, to love, to support, and to do missions, maybe across the street or across the globe or whatever it was. This is how the greatest need among the human race is met for individual people. Strengthen us, Father, for this incredible task. Thank you for Christ in the gospel that is the heart of missions. May we all put our faith in him, trust in him, and go forward this week in, a, in a, also a spiritually dark place. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.